The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 276, premium, for Wednesday, July 28th, 2010. To the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. I am Dave Hamilton here in Durham, New Hampshire, as always, or as usual, I should say. And of mm-hmm. course, joined by John Efron here in Fairfield, Connecticut. We're going to have to mix that up. We're going we're gonna to have to come up with a new flow for that. It's just time, you know, time for a change sometimes. Uh, greetings, everybody. Thank you for, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for being a premium subscriber and supporting, directly supporting that which we do here. We, uh, we very much appreciate it. We you have a, an interesting little show here today, John. Some, you know, the, the questions always come in and are related, but these, it's like, you know, we've got two about time machine, and but one of them's maybe a little bit about permissions, and so then we slip into permissions and then external hard drives. It's got like this this weird sort of handoff flow to it, and then it sort of circles back around like any good comedy routine. We're not supposed to tell them the path, though. We're, we're supposed to lead them down it, John. I think. So we can do that. let's lead them. We'll start with, uh, with Brian and Brian writes. My question is about time machine and what not to include. I just installed a new two terabyte hard drive into my iMac and have reinstalled uh, leopard because of my networked HP laser printer and then upgraded to snow leopard. My airport extreme time capsule is only one terabyte. Previously, I backed up everything but mail and some other settings like wallpaper. I want to ensure I back up the essentials, so I assume my excluded list in all real- reality should be quite long. I did make a carbon copy cloner on two separate disks file away once the system and apps were totally set up. I'm looking for specifics. Do you already have a help article? No, I don't think we do. Uh, so the, the, the question is, what defines essentials? For some people, essentials will include the operating system. For some, it won't. Right. So you, you kind of need to make this decision. Uh, he uh, he goes on and he said, uh, one quick choice is applications. I don't think I need those. Does the user data get stored here or elsewhere? OK, so uh, let, let's talk about the folders on your hard drive. It, well, it, I, I guess it, it's better to start talking about Time Machine in general. What Time Machine does let you do is pick which folders or files or disks you want to exclude from the backup. What it does not let you do is pick what files, folders, or disks you want to include. So it's all inclusive except for that which you exclude. If you're backing everything up, that makes perfect sense. If you want to do what Brian's doing and back up only certain things, it, it's totally doable, but a little bit pedantic because you've got to go through and exclude everything but, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, essentials could be system software for some, but not for others. Certainly the user folder, that's where all your documents, well, 99% of your documents are stored. And should be stored right. if you exercise discipline. And I'm not, people that have not. That's right. And I'm not just talking about your user's documents folder. I'm talking about users in general because that will get your desktop. It'll get your users slash library folder or users or your home slash library folder which has all of your settings uh, and, and all of that stuff in it. So I would, I would definitely back up the users folder, although there may be some subfolders therein that you want to exclude. Um, 
applications. You know, my, what I do is I'd go to the root level of the hard drive and just start excluding things. Now, something interesting is going to happen if you choose to exclude the system folder. When you do, it pops up a little to time machine. This is, and we're talking about going into system preferences and time machine. It pops up a little dialogue and says, would you also, you've chosen to exclude the system folder. Would you also like to exclude other files installed with Mac OS 10, such as system applications and Unix tools? And then you have an option, exclude just the system folder and do basically what you said, or exclude all system files. So if you want to exclude all system files, the easiest way is just exclude the system folder and then click the button to exclude everything else. But, uh, but yeah, I, if, if the system doesn't matter to you and really all you want is your documents, just exclude everything but your users folder. And that should get you started. Now, John, you had, you had some other ideas because there's some things stored in your user folder you might not want to keep. Exactly. So some of the suggestions I'm going to make to exclude. So one downloads, assuming that you use the, the downloads folder, you know, through uh, your browser and all that. And I think most uh, utilities that, download things will default to the downloads folder. I would say that's probably not entirely necessary. Now I back it up just in case, but I would say that's not essential. Um, movies, unless you're making your own movies, but a lot of times I just store, you know, trailers and other stuff that I download. And, uh, you know, the, that's another thing that you download and, you know, you can download so you don't need to store it. Now, here's a strategy, I would and another one. Now, here's one that takes up lots of space, and then I'll tell you how to find things that are taking up lots of space, Dave. Okay. So one is uh, virtual machines. So whether you're using VMware or Parallels or VirtualBox, all of those usually represent a hard drive as a big wampin file. And normally, when you change that file, it backs up the whole darn thing. So anytime you run... Anytime you touch that file, it's got to back it up. And, and you know, I try to make that virtual file pretty small. Well, relatively small. Like 10 gigabytes, I find, is, you know, the bare minimum to comfortably fit. Or, or at least that's what I do. That's my sure. my baseline. Um, but that's, you know, 10 gigs on your uh, on your drive there that, that you don't need to back up. Right. Now, here's the other thing. Um, there's a tool that I believe is free now. And it is called Omni Disk Sweeper. And boy, this is this is the best tool, I would say, for you to find all those things hidden in all those little nooks and crannies that you may not be aware of. Because basically what Omni Disk Sweeper will do is rip through your entire hard drive and show you uh, what the largest files are. Or it'll, it'll show them, you know, sorted by size. Now, you could certainly do that in a finder, but I, I find uh, Omni Disk Sweeper is a much better utility to do that. And it, it'll help you also understand what habits you have or however you use your system, what causes, uh, what takes up the most space. So I would say keep an eye on your system, run that every now and then find areas where you're going to be storing a lot of data. And then again, you may want to exclude those. Yep. Now he did mention he's using an airport extreme airport extreme time capsule, one terabyte. And I suppose he could, Though it's unsupported, slap another drive on there. Right. I don't know if we should. I don't know if we should uh, suggest that. Yeah. Well, it's. It, it, I'm not sure which he's using, right? Because he says Airport Extreme Time Capsule, and those are actually two separate products, not the same. Understood. I don't know if he's doing the hack. Right. Right. Which is an Airport Extreme with a USB hard drive plugged in, or, and he's yeah. So, I mean, if he has a time capsule, I mean, I, I believe when we check, time capsule will support and uh, plugging in an airport disk. Correct. Plugging in a USB disk and, and 
sharing yes. that. Yep. Yep. So one other thing he, he mentioned this, but I, I wanted to just dig in a little bit is he mentioned that he has previously excluded male. Now that may seem counterintuitive to some of you. And for many people, it is counterintuitive. However, uh, if you're using IMAP and you aren't storing anything on your Mac, everything that's in your IMAP mailboxes, and this includes sent, trash, inbox, all that stuff, is also stored on a server somewhere. And if you sync, if you use IMAP with multiple Macs, it's stored on all of those devices too. So certainly, like in my case, I have, uh, you know, I have three Macs that uh, that I use semi-regularly, one more regularly than the other two, but they all have access to my email. Well, I don't want all three of them backing up my mail. So what I've done is on two, I've gone in and you go into the home or so it's slash users slash username slash library slash mail. And then inside that folder is a folder starting with IMAP for every IMAP mailbox that you have. So you can exclude those. And that way, any stuff that you have stored on my Mac, as as mail likes to call it, still gets backed up. But you're excluding the folder that uh, that is this the duplicate, if you will, of everything on the uh, on the server. Now, that means that you don't have access to those incremental backups. If you happen to delete something and want to go back or whatever, you can't go back because it's not part of your time machine. But as far as fault tolerance, the data is stored out on the server still and potentially on your on your other machines. So. Now, one uh, one small tip that I'll give if you're an iPhoto user, I noticed this one time. I'd never noticed it before. So I, uh, right now I store all of my photos in iPhoto, you know, suck them out of the camera. Yeah. And uh, it creates events and albums and all that fun stuff. But what I usually do is, you know, thanks to the magic of digital, I'll delete any of the stinkers. The thing is, iPhoto does not automatically empty. It, it maintains a local trash. So when you when you delete the, with the iPhoto, it puts it within in a trash within iPhoto. The thing is, that gets backed up, and that trash does not get deleted, even when you've when, even when you delete your Finder trash when you empty your Correct. Finder trash. Right, right. And I remember one time. So I've been using iPhoto for years. I mean, I got like ten years worth of photos in there. And one time, it was maybe like a year ago, I had never noticed this. I'm like, wow, you know, my library's getting really big, and I think I just clicked on the trash, and there must have been 10 gigs of pictures that I had thrown away, because typically I throw away more than I take. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's 10 gigs of space that I'm wasting backing up with Time Machine. So if you use iPhoto, check the trash, or I would say any application that maintains a local trash, and I'm not going to list them, I don't even know what they are, but iPhoto is certainly one of them that has a trash that is not the system trash, as you pointed out there. Right. So, right. so check your apps every now and then, and make sure you clear out their trash, or whatever they happen to call it, and yep. uh, that can save you quite a bit of space as well. Yep. Cool. Alright, so uh, moving on to another time machine thing, and as promised, it's a strange permissions thing. John, not not our not our John, but John, a listener, John writes, I encountered a rather interesting time machine backup problem that I cannot figure out. I copied a folder called Java code from a shared folder on my Windows 7 PC to a folder called main on my Snow Leopard iMac or my Snow Leopard Mac. For some reason, if I copy paste a folder or subdirectory from my PC, the permissions look rather strange asked afterwards. 
Specifically, I noticed two custom unrecognized permissions magically appear once the folders were copied. Uh, and he did. He pointed out that uh, he sent us screenshots that show uh, one folder that was created on his Mac having read and write privileges for the user and then read only for both staff and everyone. And then this Java code folder that he copied over from the other machine has all of that plus system and admin listed with both with custom privileges. He also showed us, and this is where the real problem is an entry from his system log where time machine stops because it says it cannot copy and it points to these, this one folder. So, uh, the issue is there's something about this funky folder or these funky permissions, presumably that is breaking time machine. Uh, and so, you know, I, again, it's one of those things that without being there, uh, it's hard to tell if this solution will work or I'm pretty sure if we can implement this solution, it will work. The question is, will the system let us mess with this? And I believe, you know, the, the simplest thing to do is to go into the get info for the affected folder and remove the permissions from system and admin. So we're highlighting the folder. We go to file, get info. And then down at the bottom of that window is a, a section called sharing and permissions. You may need to twist the triangle to see the details of this. Once you're there, uh, you want to highlight the, the, the two that seem wrong and remove them. Now, you might not be able to do this right out of the gate. You might have to click on in the lower right corner is a little lock icon. You might have to click that and authenticate uh, with your user password in order to be able to make these modifications. So you make those modifications. And then next to the minus sign is the familiar little tool widget. And if you drop that down into a menu, you'll see apply these changes to enclosed folders. Choose that. And hopefully, fingers crossed, that takes care of it now. If it doesn't, it means that we're digging into the ACL realm. And that's where things get a little tricky, John. Yuck. Yuck. Yuck is right. You know, I, oh, man. I, we had this in another. Maybe I can find this. But there is a tool that yep. will let you examine ACLs. So, so an ACL or access control list, right? I guess that's what it is. Um, yeah. It are permissions above and beyond the normal user group world permissions that you get in Unix, which is what you should expect to see under OS X. If you see anything more, then, yeah, that's typically, I, I think, bad. Uh, let, let me see if I can find that, uh, that, that utility. But there, but there are utilities that will let you examine and clear out those ACLs, so you may need a more sophisticated tool. Uh, though I think what you suggested will, will fly, Dave. I mean, if it's visible, then you should be able to whack it. Um, the only thing you can imagine is that, yeah, it's something. Well, obviously, Windows 7 is the problem here. <laughs> of course it is. It always, always is. All right. So we actually did a little hunting here while the pause button was on and found. Well, we found one thing that we discussed recently, which was Chuck had sent in and recommended that for repairing ACLs or access control lists uh, using a piece of software called Snow Leopard Cache Cleaner, which we'll link to. And there's a menu uh, item in the maintain menu called repair home folder ACL. Now that may or may not be detailed enough to fix a specific problem with a non standard user folder. Uh, and, but for that, I believe John, you've got an idea. Yes. So I found a piece of software. I don't know if it's terribly current, um, but it's called tinker tool system. 
And one of the features is that it will let you view it controlless. They should never have to do this. And I don't know, again, why it would set these, but that may be just one of the weird things about the Windows 7 file sharing or SMB file. I, I assume it's SMB, or maybe it's using some wacky file sharing that, that applies those permissions. So yep. Tinker Tool System, and I will link to, because uh, they had a few different versions. I think it was Tinker Tool System 2, release 2. That's okay. it. And it's been updated in 2009. Okay, so that's the current product. So, all right. You know, we we go the extra mile to offer you extra value. <laughs> Actually, I see Tinker Tool System Two was released June eighth, twenty ten. Yeah, there we go. Version two point three was anyway. So excellent. So there's some older versions of that product that I don't think are compatible with Snow Leopard. So okay. uh, now, of course, you know, needless to say, be careful because ACLs are something that you should never need to to monkey with. So. Right. Uh, other, except in a case like this, but hopefully just removing them is possible and then and then you're good to go. So. All right. Uh, so we'll take the uh, permissions conversation and we'll we'll move on to Jeff here with a question. Jeff writes, recently, I ran into a serious permissions problem after a, about a week of tinkering. I just reinstalled my operating system and the problem is fixed on the boot drive. However, I'd like to be sure the external hard drive permissions are set to their defaults, as I'm guessing the operating system installed didn't touch those. How would I do this? So you're right, Jeff. The external hard drive is not touched during an OS install, and that's that's a good thing uh, in most cases. However, uh, John, you you have the uh, I believe you have the magic answer for us here. I think I do. I mean, I looked at one of my external drives that had been recently flooded on a snow leopard machine. It looks like it's slightly different for leopard because I'm seeing it different here. It's at least on my system. So when I looked at the drive itself and did a get info, I saw the following. As we discussed, there should be three levels of permission. So one was username in parentheses me, and that was read-write. Staff was read-write, and everyone read-only. Now, don't worry about that. that that's okay. And then any of the files or folders within there had the, uh, had the following. Uh, same thing, username, in parentheses, me, read, write, staff, read only, everyone, read only. Cool. So uh, just... Uh, now that's assuming you have permissions enabled on your external drive. I believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, John, but by default, when you plug an external drive in... Uh, it, it ignores permissions on the external drive, uh, so that your Mac can read and write any file on there, no matter what the permissions would have been set to, if it were say the boot drive, is is that right? That sounds correct. Yeah. You're going to see when you do a get info on the drive, there's going to be a little checkbox that says ignore ownership on this volume. That's it. And, uh, yeah, my experience is that. That's normally checked. I don't know if I'm entirely... Now, I guess that's another thing you could do. You could punt, and if you check that box, then you should be able to do anything on the drive. Right. Right. Cool. All right. Uh, let's go on to David. He has, uh, speaking of hard drives and security, we have a, an interesting, interesting question. Okay, Dave and John. David from New Zealand here. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, so I'm moving back to North America at the end of the year, specifically to Canada. And what I'm looking at doing is finding a way to securely move my external hard drives. Now, I've got quite a few of them because I've got some fairly critical and sensitive data. So I'm quite a bit into this multiple redundancy business. But I'm actually worried about the security of shipping them. Now, 
Um, I'm going to ship them priority courier with you know all kinds of tracking on them, and then separate them into two or three different you know shipments. So they're not all going to be in one box, and I don't really want to spare any expense in all of this. But I'm concerned particularly about the security of the data. Um, so, for example, if a box goes missing and someone cracks it open, because those hard drives, you know, are either super duper clones or you know, uh, partitions that have Chronosync container backups of you know my critical working files, either way, they're going to be accessible. Uh, all that data is going to be accessible. So, my question is this: Is it going to be feasible and safe for me to kind of temporarily create an encrypted disk image of each of my external drives, then erase? the drive itself and then move the corresponding disk image back to the drive from which it came? Uh, or is there another way that I, I can potentially do this that I haven't quite thought of? But uh, any help you guys could uh, provide, that'd be great. And hey, listen, thanks very much for the podcast. Really enjoy it. I've been a loyal listener for, gosh, it's been years now. So uh, this is where you uh, cut me off. Thanks, guys. Okay, Dave and John. David. I, I went to cut you off and you uh, your audio stopped. Whoa. So I started playing it again. That's right. Um, All right. I'm, Go I'm gonna I'm gonna step back, Dave, and ask what may be a silly question, okay. or or make make a, what I think is a valid observation. Yeah. Um, why not bring them with you instead of shipping them? You mean the thing is, once they're out of your possession, whether they be in your suitcase or a shipper, and, and I think most you know, depending. I mean, some posts uh, I don't know if I trust in, in some parts of the world. Uh, I would imagine. I think he said he's in New Zealand. Right. In Canada, I think they said they have fairly good reputations. Or you may want to do, or I think he said he was going to do a private courier, someone like, you know, maybe DHL. I think they're a good global one or UPS or something like that. There is um, FedEx, you know. And FedEx. Yeah, it, it, yeah I think FedEx, DHL, uh, the, there are a few global ones. Right. And I'm sure you could put extra, you know, so of course, you know, use very good padding, uh, foam or, or, or whatever, if you have the box the hard drive came in, which of course I have every, you know, device that, that I've bought, I have... Uh, the boxes for those stored away, and there's no one, you know, in, in, here in the house to yell at me uh, to get rid of that garbage. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'll take a tangent there. I've started getting rid of that garbage because I'm sick and tired of it. I, you know, I just don't need all those stupid boxes from the iMac that's sitting here or anything. If I'm going to ship it to Apple or really any other repair facility, they're going to send me a box. So I, I've started throwing all that crap away, and I feel so good about it. I used to pack that stuff. I moved that crap with me, uh, you know, from one house to the other. It's stupid. Throw it all away. Yeah. So now anyway. he, he may he may have quite a few hard drives and maybe it's it's not uh, reasonable to bring them with you on sure. the uh, whatever motor transport you're taking. I would assume a flight. Uh, but that's if at all possible. I mean, that that's your best option. Because they're never going to be out of your sight. There's no risk of them being lost. Um, there's a slight risk of the you know plane not making it, but in that case, you're really not going to have much to worry about after that point, anyways. <laughs> well, if they're packed into his luggage, there's risk of them being lost, right? Or or at the very least, misplaced for a period of time. Uh, and and you know, if they're going to be out of your hands, uh, the, the, his concern is valid. So so let, let's assume for whatever reason. Uh, he needs to secure these, be it that he's shipping it with someone else or or put packing it in his luggage, right? The the thing that jumped to mind was PGP whole disk encryption. Ah, right. Good. I mean that to me that's the the simplest answer here because it it will go through and encrypt the the data on the drive on the drive, so you don't have to excuse me, you don't have to have a second drive that you're going to move stuff to and create a disk image and all this stuff. It just goes through. It does it right there on the disk. 
and uh, and you're good to go. I, I, I don't I don't know. I, I mean, it says that it, it not only encrypts your internal drive, but external USB and firewire disks as well. So I, I think that's the simple answer. And it's, you know, it's PGP, so I would trust it. Oh, sure. I mean, the encryption they use is quite strong. Uh, of course, a lot of this is always, as we mentioned, and I'm going to mention it again, is always based on the strength of your password. The best oh. encryption in the world makes absolutely no difference if you choose a lame password. And Wait, I'm sure David so, is going to pick uh, because, yeah, I mean, the, so the, using using password is bad. Yes. Mm-hmm. No. Or even no, no password. Yeah. Because basically all these products use that as either a seed or as, as a way to create the encryption key. Right. So, so, again, yeah, you could have the best AES, you know, however many bits encryption, but it's all going to fall apart if the, if the password stinks. So uh, just to reiterate that, though, it, it may seem obvious. I want to mention that. Now, a couple other options, Dave. Now, there's also TrueCrypt. Now, TrueCrypt does not encrypt a system volume. That's the only drawback of the product. The benefit of the product, of course, is that it is free. Okay. Uh, or and open he's source. not talking about encrypting system volumes, right? So Right. I believe it's just external drive. So, so this will let you create. And again, it has all sorts of uh, encryption algorithms. And it guides you to choose a nice password. And I think it even uses you know, mouse movements for randomization. I think PGP does that as well. So that's another option. Now, I actually thought of something oh, yeah, else. That's a good so, idea. I like that. Go ahead. So um, now File Vault's another. Yeah. You know, but, but no, he's talking external drives. Right. Now, here's another that I would consider, and then you could use it in combination with some of these products, Dave. But if we're not talking a lot of data, and if we're talking a big hard drive, I'm assuming we are, but if we're not, something in the cloud may be appropriate, whether it be an iDisk or something like Carbonite, or something like Dropbox. Yeah, you'd 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 want to encrypt whatever you're sending up of to it. Yep. Yes, very good point. Yeah, you don't want to leave that because it's only as as strong as whatever password you use to access it over over the network. Well, and so, and uh, the people at Dropbox or Apple or Carbonite do right. technically have access to whatever you've uploaded there. Now they may have privacy policies that say that they won't touch it, but the reality is they could. Uh, and, and if you've got data that's sensitive and you, you know, need to honor a certain level of security, well, then, then, then you've got to do it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, that may be an option for the most sensitive of the data, like the absolutely critical data, because typically, you know, these guys don't give you, I mean, right now my Dropbox is, is 10 gigs, Dave. I mean, you can certainly pay them and buy more, but you're, you're going to talk more money here. And sure. of course, a uh, Mac or iDisks, they, they of course would be more than happy to sell you uh, more disk space if you want, as does Carbonite, I believe, but right. that can start getting uh, pretty pricey. And the other headache with these guys, of course, is that typically your upload speeds are uh, typically not as fast as download speeds. So you could be sitting there for quite a while waiting for this to happen. But yep. uh, just in the interest of multiple options, which it, it, it sounds like David's already doing that. You know, if, if you're, yeah. you know, if you're going to don't, don't have any one single point of failure as, as you and I like to point out, Dave. That's right. That's right. Yep. So I think you should just, just try all of them. <laughs> you all on top of each other. Oh, just every combination. So true career, PGP, Dropbox, Carbonite, iDisc. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, at no. some level, it's like shuffling a deck of cards and winding up with the same thing you started with, right? But mm. uh, uh, yeah, I think TrueCrypt is actually the uh, the answer there because uh, why not? It's free. So, all right. Speaking of traveling, John writes, uh, and John had a, a comment about traveling, and then he asked, 
Could you please recap an idiot's guide of things to turn off when using public networks? So this could apply to uh, you being in a hotel, could apply to you being in an airport, connecting to a public network there, or even just in a Starbucks or wherever, connecting to any network where other computers are connected and there are people that maybe, uh, you know, the people that you don't know. If it's at the office, uh, you know, use your discretion here as to whether you got to worry about it or not. But, but certainly at a Starbucks where the general public can come and get on the network. That's uh, you, you want to be you want to be sure that you're not sharing more than you intend to share. So so my list always starts with going into system preferences and going into sharing and turning off everything. There's a bunch of checkboxes there. I usually have a couple, three things on. Uh, I turn all of them off. Now, what you could do is use command shift four uh, to take a screen area screenshot and save that off to your desktop so that when you get back to your home or office and you want to turn all this stuff back on, you don't have to remember, well, what, what did I have on? You just pull up the screenshot and boom, oh, yep, there's the four checkboxes and you go and check them. Uh, but I recommend turning all of them off uh, unless you need the one thing I've been turning on lately, John, is uh, Internet sharing. And that's because I have a Wi-Fi only iPad. And a lot mm -hmm. of times in hotels, you know, if I get an Ethernet connection to my laptop, I share it that way. And uh, and and that way I can share to my iPad and I'm not you know paying for two connections or if the hotel's Wi-Fi is flaky or whatever. Uh, I do it that way. But uh, but yeah, that's my uh, that's my advice on that part of it. But then, John, you had. You had a good idea. Oh, I got, well, of course, well, every now and then, you know. All right. So anyways, here, here's some other additional things that I would do. So another one uh, would be, you may want to enable your firewall. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. And then here's another option to protect you from people with nefarious uh, plans. Uh, if you go into firewall and you click on advanced, it's not available right now, but I think it's, a, I think it's there. Uh, there's something called stealth mode. Uh, what this will do is prevent uh, now it may interrupt some network services, but I think if, if security is your uh, your goal here, basically what that does is it makes it so your machine will not respond to a lot of common probing tools like pings and stuff like that. Now, again, it may interfere with some network applications. So but I, I would recommend doing that. But then here's another one, Dave, that much to my delight, I've seen this happen sometimes. So even if people take all the advice that we have just given, Dave, Yes, there's a, a, there's a couple of services that kind of slip through the cracks and actually kind of surprises me that but that they're not in sharing. Yeah. But as some of you may know, if you use some of the iApps like iTunes or iPhoto, they allow you to share either yes, your photo libraries or your music library. And as far as I know, there is no tie in between that sharing and what is in the sharing system preference that you just mentioned, Dave. And that they're independent. Correct. They are. You're right. Yep. Because yeah. I know I've seen, especially in hotels, like at Macworld and other places, I've seen. Fo I, I, so number one, just because I'm nosy, I always have look for shared libraries on. And, and you'll see them in, in the sidebar in the finder if, if they are available. Uh, I've seen no, some pictures. No, that, you'll see hmm? them in the sidebar in iTunes. If oh, they're I'm available. sorry. That's okay. I'm, I'm just okay. To catch you. Yeah. But keep going. No, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah. The sidebar. Okay. Yeah, you'll see the shared disks in the Finder, but yeah, Correct. you will see the shared libraries, either picture library in the appropriate application. Right. All I got to say, so yeah, number one, I'll always have the, the, the feature looking for those turned on within those programs. And number two, sometimes people, 
I mean, music may not be so bad, but uh, sometimes people share pictures that they, uh, all I'm going to say is sometimes people share pictures that probably should not be shared with well, people they don't know. So what's interesting is I have that turned on too, mostly because here at the house, we do have a bunch of music libraries and we wind up sharing. Uh, but it's when I open iTunes that I see, you know, I always wind up seeing somebody else's shared library at the hotel. And that reminds me to go in and, oh yeah, I got to turn it off. So I go turn it off. Uh, but you're right with music. It's not a big deal for two reasons. One, uh, though, people may be able to play your music. Uh, they can't copy your music. However, with pictures, if you have an unpassword protected share and you can password protect these, both iTunes and iPhoto allow you to set a password uh, for people to come in and share. But if if someone can share to your iPhoto library, they can copy pictures from it. So uh, you could have somebody, you know, sitting there all night copying down all your pictures from your laptop while it's sitting there on and you're sitting there asleep and you would have no idea that this was happening. So, yeah, definitely, definitely a good question. So, first of all, thank well, you, John. And, and uh, yeah, good stuff. OK, well, I would say you would not have an idea unless you some use their menu meters and you all of a sudden see that even though you're doing nothing, you're you're generating a lot of uh, upload traffic. Yeah. That's you a know, good reason to use one of those tools. I, I I'll I'll stop here. You've you've had we've had enough Skype hiccups today that that I, I and I know you have a cable modem issue that you're addressing on Saturday. So all I can say is on behalf of the listeners uh, and and me, I'm looking forward to your cable modem resolution coming on Saturday. Well, I'm just having download problems. My upload speed is is fine. Uh, your upload speed is fine when you test it with a burstable tool like yes. speed test. Right. Right. Yes. But suffice to say, but yeah, they're coming out. They're coming out Saturday. Good. Good. Because I did a test and my download speed was slower than my upload speed, which indicates to me that something's really wrong. So. Yeah, that's not that's not how it usually goes. Yeah, it's it's worth noting as a complete tangent here, those speed tests, either speedtest.net or most of them, uh, will do a far more thorough bandwidth test on the downstream than they do on the upstream. On the upstream, it's a very short burst compared to what they're doing on the downstream. And and so you don't necessarily get a good picture of what your upstream looks like. If if it can burst something out, you'll have no idea if there's packet loss or really anything like that uh, with any of the with with that particular tool. So, yeah. Well, you told me about a tool, Dave, that is actually very nice and it's a companion. I think it's the same people, but it's called Ping Test. Pingtest.net. That's right. And I think that'll tell you if you have drop packets or jitter or some other uh, parameters. Yeah. Um, independent of your, your bandwidth. Now, the reason I think I also have a problem, uh, again, another tangent here, but I think it's useful. Uh, there's a tool that I use. So, so one thing that you can do is you can go to your cable modem and, of course, uh, 192.168.100.1, I think it is. Yep. Is normally a page where you're going to see uh, at least some high-level statistics about, the, you know, the, the transmit voltage, receive voltage. And I've been noticing some of these values are out of spec. But there's another tool that I use that if you're a... Uh, cable modem or whatever device you have allows you uh, SNMP access, simple network management protocol. Correct. There is a tool called DocsDiag, and I think it's been out for a real long time, but it's a Java program, and of course, uh, you have Java on the Mac. Right. And this can tell you everything you ever wanted to know and things that you didn't want to know about what your cable modem's up to. And one of the parameters that... Uh, someone suggested I look at. So fortunately, at least one of our listeners, if not more, is a, a cable technician. And he's like, yeah, well, what do you see for quality of service? Uh, and I think the the parameter, and it shows up if I run DocsDiag uh, 
dash VV, I think, which is, you know, generate some extra info. And there are a couple of quality service parameters, one of them being uh, retransmissions without errors and retransmissions with errors or, or no er errors. Uh, there were two stats that have to do with with uh, packets that had to be retried. Oh, yeah, I think it was retry due to error and retry. And, and he was telling me and I've seen this, but if those values are steadily increasing, then in all likelihood, there's a hardware issue with the, the line quality. And I am seeing those values increase. Interesting. Cool. I mean, not yeah. cool, but you know, cool that you can, uh, yeah. cool that you can check into it. Let, let me, let me find the exact, uh, I, th I think, uh, are we, oh, and, and the other thing. So one last thing, now we're going to get back on track here, but to John, if at all possible, any app that you are running, you, you want to make sure that you have an SSL connection. So of course with the web browser, that means you want an HTTPS colon slash slash connection, which means that it's going to encrypt the web traffic because somebody could potentially, uh, see your traffic. Likewise, uh, many other programs, for example, Twitter, will support SSL. Yep. And a lot of email, uh, especially IMAP or whatever, uh, email can also layer SSL on top of, uh, you know, when you're, you're sending or receiving email. So poke around in the apps that you use commonly, and if there is SSL, enable it. Um, it, it certainly won't hurt, and it's going to protect your traffic. I want to point out, along that same line, I want to point out something I noticed this morning. I was walking through my iPhone mail settings, actually helping someone else with their iPhone. And so if you go on your iPhone or iPod Touch uh, into settings and then mail contacts calendars, and then you choose your mail account, you can click on account info. And then at the bottom of that, you'll see all your server names and all this other happy stuff. At the bottom of that is an advanced button where you can set a whole lot of other things. And at the bottom of that is a section called incoming settings. And what I noticed this morning is that the use SSL option was off on my iPhone. Uh, <laughs> I turned it on and, and now all is well in the world. But, you know, I was using IMAP port 993, which is only for SSL. So I'm wondering if my iPhone was intelligent enough to renegotiate the connection securely, but maybe wasn't doing it as efficiently because it was trying it without it for, you know, this art, the server won't accept an insecure connection on that, on that port. So I'm not sure what was happening, but hmm. well worth going in and turning on that SSL option uh, on your iPhone as well, or your iPod touch. Now, if, if you're going over 3G, then you're probably okay because I think that traffic, uh, if you're on, on Wi-Fi on the other hand, then yeah, hmm. that they're, that may be bad. All right, so I, so I did find this figure. So they listed as SIGQ, S-I-G-Q-U, signal quality. Okay. And there are three parameters. Received without error, and that number should be the largest, and it is. Then there are two others. Correctable errors, which I guess is nice, and uncorrectable errors. And the thing is, I'm seeing both of those numbers uh, steadily marching upward. And that, that again, my, my colleague told me, my friend, my colleague, listener, all three, I guess. Um, that's not good. Yeah, not good. He also told me to look for a, a signal to noise ratio, and that value should be, I think, above thirty-five or forty, and it is. So, okay. So he he suspected there's a, a blown amp somewhere, and that that's why I'm also seeing my receive voltage uh, much higher than it used to be. Ah, uh, yep. Yep. All right. All right. Uh, you know, let's go to where are we on time here? Should we do Ron or just move right on to Seth? I think it's time to move on to Seth. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Ron, it's an interesting story, but uh, yeah, we'll go on. We'll go on to mm. Seth here. 
Um, well, you know, actually, this is it, it, it's a cautionary tale. We, we will tell Ron's right. story. Uh, and in fact, Ron introduces it as a cautionary tale. A friend of his was at a hotel on Wi-Fi and noticed other computers showing up under his finder window in the shared section. Uh, he checked the permit and, and he went wrong on this. Uh, but he checked the permissions instead of going into system preferences sharing. Ron's friend went into the permissions on his hard drive and noticed that everyone had read and write privileges. He became anxious and he changed everyone to no access. Now, I think everyone would have read only privileges there, but I could be wrong. Uh, but that anyway, sounds right. Yeah, he changed it to no access. Uh, so. When he did this, uh, uh, let's see, I'm, I'm trying to read through the. the so uh, Ron says, when I did this, my computer simply would not start up. It only went as far as the gray screen, the Apple and whirling disk. All the usual tricks, including resetting privileges from the Snow Leopard DVD and the and nothing worked. The only way was to restore resort to a clean install to get it back. Uh, fortunately, this clean install worked out rather painlessly. Uh, and uh, and he, you know, he's good to go. But be very careful about editing the permissions of your hard drive itself. Uh, if you get stuff in your user folder, of course, we talked about that issue with Jeff before and John before about hard drive permissions. Totally fine on an external drive. Totally fine on specific folders. But uh, be very careful about permissions on your hard drive in general. I, I'm surprised that changing it, that the Snow Leopard repair permissions option in it in the uh, disk utility on this on the DVD didn't work. But uh, but there hmm. you go. So. Yeah, well, I guess in this case, no access means <laughs> no access. Oh, yeah, even even to the system itself. Yikes. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe that's it. Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, I wonder what would have happened if you booted from another drive and put that somehow either in FireWire or Target disk mode, or if that wasn't possible, taking the disk out and putting it in an external enclosure, and then clicking the you know ignore ownership on this volume. I mean, there might have been some path to get that uh, to get that resolved. All right. Seth writes, I want to set up a network between my home and my office so that my program on my home Mac can access the database it uses on my office Mac like it was on the local network. My office does not have a static IP address. I've been researching on the Web and the info I found is confusing. I can use log me in and back to my Mac, but performance is not good enough to actually get work done. I'm wondering if you can shed some light on this. So. Let's talk about this. Uh, we'll talk about it in general first and then and then some specifics. You've got two options when you're doing something like this. You can create a VPN. And what that is, is you essentially, and you'd create the VPN uh, instance at the office. You'd set up a, a VPN server probably in your router uh, is, the, is the place you could do this. And some routers support it, some don't. But uh, and we're not going to go into the, the specifics of this, but what a VPN is, is it allows you to tunnel in to your office from a computer anywhere else. Uh, and you'd set up some username and password and you might even set up some encryption or, or something to, to make this tunnel secure. But a VPN is a tunnel in to your office. And what it would let you do is once you've once you've successfully created this tunnel, it allows your Mac at home 
to act as though it's a Mac on the office network. It could print to printers there. It could see other servers there. It's just like, well, almost just like it's plugged into the router. And Mac OS X supports a couple different types of VPNs. And then there's third-party clients if, uh, if necessary. So, so that would be one option. The thing is, all the computers at your office are on either Wi-Fi or Ethernet and are used to accessing all the office resources at Ethernet or Wi-Fi speeds. You are coming in over cable modem speeds or, you know, some sort of cable or DSL, some sort of Internet connection speeds, which are much, much, much slower than what you're getting over most Wi-Fi and certainly uh, Ethernet. So, you know, if your upstream at your office is going to be your issue on on the VPN there, because that's typically upstream is the slowest uh, component, unless you're John. Right. And then you have uh, you have exactly the opposite. problem, John. <laughs> But that'll hopefully be fixed. So that's one option. Number two is you could do a VNC or log me in or some sort of remote access, right, where you're getting a screen sharing with your computer at the office. Now you may also have to create a VPN in order to be able to do this depends on how the router and the firewall and all that are set up. But that involves taking control of the computer at the office and letting your mouse and keyboard at your home operate as though they're the mouse and keyboard of the computer at the office. The benefit here is that the speed, the access speed is still the local speed. So if you've got an app running on your office machine, it accesses your database as though it's local in the office because it is. And all it's doing is sending screen updates back and you can alter the way those updates are sent, you know, reduce the number of colors or whatever to make it so that it's sending less data uh, if you're having speed problems. But if you're saying that you've tried log me in and it's too slow to get work done, I'm not convinced you're going to be happy with any option here without increasing the speed. So that's part that that's kind of the general answer here. John, you, you, you have, I know you have something to add here. Again, I have a different wacky. I don't know if it's wacky. No, it's not wacky. And actually I found a third option, Dave here. There is a way to do screen sharing, which of course is built into right. Snow Leopard over SSH. But I think they're going to run into the same issues, you know, screen sharing. It's going to be pumping lots of, you know, lots of data, but I found actually a OS 10 hints article uh, about that. So that I think is a a lightweight and secure option. Yep. But here's the thing I was thinking now. um, What Seth was saying is, uh, let me me find it in here. He's accessing, trying to access a database. Now, if he's accessing a database, Dave, you know, trying to do a remote access session, maybe overkill. And that you don't need to do this. Now, why do I say that? Well, I'm going to base this on something that you and I had recently done, Dave. So um, so we have this database. Um, TMO has a database, and there's all sorts of things stored in there. Um, my purpose is, you know, when I do a review or write about something, we, uh, we all, you know, put in the name of the contacts so we can follow up with them and just, you know, keep nice records. Um, and, and you need to give me access to that database, Dave. Well, Correct. there's a couple of ways to do it. Now, you're using FileMaker. So FileMaker has two ways to do this. So one, which is kind of nice, and, and I think it's easier for you. Or, or No, actually, the, the options are probably about the same level of difficulty. So one Once is that you create up, a... It's, yeah, it's of, no, it's of no consequence to the administrator. That's right. <laughs> so one, but, and actually, I prefer the, the latter. So the first option is that you can create a web page, which is, of course, secure. You know, I have to log in and provide a username and password. Right. And then I have access to the database where I can enter the information that I need to enter. 
but I didn't really like the web interface because a lot of times they're, they're a bit lacking. So at least FileMaker, and I would suspect other databases, um, we don't know the specific database here. Hopefully it's one of the larger ones. You gave me, I guess, what we could call a connector, Dave. So you gave me a little FileMaker program, I guess. Or, or it's, it's a pointer. So what it requires is that I'm running FileMaker, which I am. Yep. Uh, I think I'm on 10 right now. I don't know if 11 is the latest. But basically, I have FileMaker. So what, the, so what this basically does is creates a little tunnel. Well, it basically lets me access remotely. But using the FileMaker program versus the web page, access this database so I can manipulate the information. Yeah, re- really all I did was I, I could have given you the server address the port number to connect on and the name mm-hmm. of the database that you're connecting. And, and certainly you're a smart enough guy. You'd take that information and you could run with it and, and in all likelihood, get yourself connected with FileMaker by going opening FileMaker and doing open remote and, you know, going through all the steps, but that's a pedantic process to do every time you want to get stuff in the database. And I want you to get stuff into the database. So I want to remove all barriers. And of course, I want to make it easy for everyone. So what I did was I scripted that login and mm-hmm. I built that little script and I put it into a FileMaker database file. And then I sent you that FileMaker database file and it's set to automatically run that script every time that database is launched. So you launched this tiny little database on your computer and really all it's there for is to run the script and then it closes itself. It's gone. And mm-hmm. you're left with, if you've entered your username and password correctly, you're left with the TMO database and you're good to go. So, but yeah, your access, once you're logged in, you're accessing the database directly from your computer direct to the server. Now, with we're running FileMaker Server 10 Advanced here, which gives us the web publishing capabilities. Uh, but I think, and I think it started with FileMaker Server, it was either, I think it was eight, it might have been nine, they shifted a lot of the load processing from the client to the server prior to that. And we've been using FileMaker since I think version with backbeat, we started with version five um, and mo- and the server was like a dumb server. It didn't do any thinking on its own. It basically just, you know, held the databases up and said, come get what you want from them. And that worked fine if you were local, but if you were accessing it over the internet, doing a search could take a really long time because you were combing through all the data and passing it back and forth over the internet Uh, that has changed. And now what essentially what you're doing is passing the search to FileMaker, and then it's passing the results back to you. Uh, So it's, it's far more efficient than it used to be. The question in Seth's case here is what database engine is running. And hopefully is it, you know, efficient enough to operate over, the slow speeds of the internet. And I realize the internet is very, very fast compared to dial up from years ago, but it's still very slow compared to a local network. Yeah. But I'm going to suspect that as far as bandwidth consumption, that this is going to be certainly be less than trying to do a graphical remote access. session. I, I wouldn't assume that uh, okay. certainly with the way FileMaker used to be uh, a screen screen sharing is very low bandwidth. You can do it over a dial up connection. Right. And and you can have a lot of information displayed on the screen and, and over it comes. In many cases, that's the fastest way of doing things. Screen sharing, because all you're doing is sending screen updates and it can be compressed. And all you're doing is sending changes. And it's very, mm. very efficient, um, you know, trying to send trying to do network sharing across the Internet can can be can be very slow uh, and, and it can be yeah. very troublesome. 
Yeah, I'm going to disagree with you. Well, all right. There you go. I'm just thinking if you're just sending database queries and replies, then you're, you're, you're talking data that will agree to disagree. No, I, su- in- I suspect a database connection would probably take up less than send. No, you make a good point that the graph, you know, it's not sending the entire screen every time you no. update the screen. It's just sending the delta. So, so you're right. Is it that? It, OK, so maybe they're about the same. Well, yeah, it could it could it, it with it, it it depends on how efficient the app that we're talking about is and we don't know what app that is, right? So it, it that that's the question. Um so yeah, maybe setting up a, a VPN is your answer and and then that gets you into your office network and then you can connect to the database as you uh, as you see fit. So, talk to the uh, network admin or the da- the database uh, or DBA, database administrator, right, and see what they got in their bag of tricks as far as enabling uh, remote access for you, and uh, maybe that'll work out. Cool. All right, I think it's time to move on to uh, on to Mark here. <laughs> this is interesting. Mark says, "I have a nuke and pave question. I want to upgrade my 2008 MacBook Pro pre Unibody to Snow Leopard, and would prefer to do a clean install." Not an upgrade. My last clean install was more than a year ago. So how about this strategy? Number one, install Snow Leopard cleanly on an external hard drive first. Number two, leave the old system running and at my leisure, cleanly install apps and documents over to this external hard drive. Number three, when all is well, then move this over to the laptop. This last part is a bit unclear to me. Should I use disk utility to do it or is there something else? Do I need to concern myself with the type of partition table or format type? Thanks for any help you might provide. Okay. So, John, let's work backwards here. Let's answer his question and then let's pick apart his uh, his his path, shall we? Surely. Okay. <laughs> don't eat. Don't don't call me Shirley. Uh, I had to do it. I had to. So. Yeah, disk utility. I think disk utility would be your best bet. There's certainly other options. There's carbon copy cloner. There's super duper. There's all that stuff. But disk utility has this one really cool feature called restore. So you launch disk utility. It doesn't matter what disk you have selected on the left. Click on the restore tab and you see there's two uh, two options or two places where you can either browse to find either a disk or a disk image or drag one in. you check the source and the destination, the source, whatever you put in the source, and it can just be a disc mounted on your computer. The source is the, the, you know, in your case would be the volume on the external disc destination would be the volume on the internal disc. Now you're going to need to do this from a yet a third disc. So I would recommend booting from the snow leopard DVD and using disc utility from in there to do this copy. Uh, but it, be careful because if you mix those two up, you'll blow away your new one. Uh, or if you put the wrong thing in there, you'll blow stuff away. It, it, it doesn't care. It, you know, it's happy to let you make mistakes and, uh, it'll execute your instructions regardless of how flawed they might be. Also, you know, this will wipe out your internal drive. So I do recommend doing a backup just in case this restore process blows away everything. So restore is sort of a, it it's, it's the wrong label for this task because it, it's not really restoring it could be restoring from say a backup but really it's it's cloning it's taking what's on one disc and moving it to another it's the feature we all used to use before migration assistant existed when we got a new mac we just restore from the old 
Mac's hard drive to the new one and we'd be up and running immediately. Uh, and, you know, maybe we'd have to reinstall the OS after the restore to get it right. And, you know, it was a little bit funky, but certainly better than starting from scratch. But you want to start from scratch and we get that. But your process, I think, is a little flawed, too, because in order to install apps properly on your new hard drive, you're going to need to boot from it. Uh, you can't, you, you know, if you can't run an app installer and run it on a third hard drive, because if there's stuff that's supposed to go in the library folder, I mean, there's not a lot of apps that do this, but if something's got to go anywhere other than the applications folder, it's going to get real confused real fast because it's going to be putting it in the apps folder on your external drive and then the library stuff in the, you know, on the internal drive. It's going to be a mess because all the installers assume you're the disk you're booted from is the disk you will be booted from when you run the app. So I, I'm not convinced of the process here, uh, but but maybe it'll work for you. Uh, John, you, you have an idea? Hmm. I'll answer one question that he has as far as partition table or format type is, of course, partition table. Uh, I'm going to say if it's any recent machine, you want GUID and format type would be Mac OS extended. Yeah, Journal. well, if he's, if he's doing Snow Leopard, we definitely know he's running an Intel Mac. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so yes, GUID is the uh, part is the partition map type. Right. Um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I'm not crazy about I I understand I think why he wants to do this, I, I guess I'm not really crazy, but I mean, I would, I don't see why you wouldn't want to use something like, uh, I mean, my favorite is carbon copy cloner. So of course you want to format the uh, destination drive before you bring things over. Um, I, I, I don't know if I have uh, too much to add here. I, I, I think his approach for what he wants to accomplish, which I think is, is to minimize the amount of cruft coming over. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Sounds like the way to go. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, I get it, but it, at the same, you know, I think uh, honestly, let, let's, let's pick this apart. We know the end goal is that he wants to be up and running happily on a system onto which he did a clean install, right? That that's, mm -hmm. that's the goal. So here's how I would do that because I've done this and it really doesn't take that long. Carve out like an afternoon, make sure before you start that you have the installers for any software that you can't simply download from the internet. And then the first thing you do is you make a clone of your internal hard drive onto your external. And you can use carbon copy cloner. You could use disk utility. You could use super duper. It doesn't matter, but make a clone of it so that if all else fails and you have to get back to where you started from, you simply, uh, you know, you've got this clone. Plus you've got all your documents there that you can migrate over. So that, that would be step one. And now disconnect that drive. Don't have it connected to your Mac. Then install Snow Leopard clean. Do a wipe the disk, install Snow Leopard on your internal. So now you're at scratch. Go do all the updates, right? Get the combo updater, do the update to 10.6.4. Then just start installing your apps. That's uh, not going to take that long. You know, there's, there's probably not that many apps that you absolutely have to have critical to your system. You know, it's probably going to take you a couple of hours and then plug your other hard drive back in and copy your documents over. And, you know, maybe your mail from your library folder, or if you know, whatever you want, and then you're done. It's just not that big of a deal. So there's no reason to do this long. I don't think you're going to, the process is going to take you quite as long as you might imagine. 
And, and because of that, I think you can kind of do it in a very compressed way. And then you're just done and you're not trying to do some convoluted booting back and forth thing where, uh, you know, where you, where you might, where you stand the chance of confusing things and putting something on one drive versus the other and screwing everything up. So I would just start the path and finish it. Probably going to take you, you know, six hours or less, let's say. And it's probably even more like three or four. So that's, that's my advice. Mm. All right. You know, I don't know. What, what do you think, John? I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know. I'm a big fan of uh, migration system myself. I am too. I am too. But I, but I can, I can appreciate the need uh, or the desire for a cruft free system, or at least a controlled amount of cruft on the system. So. Well, I mean, also, I mean, I'm looking at the timetable. So, and my guideline is, I mean, if you're talking a system like 10.1, all right, and you've constant, then you've built up so oh. much cruft over the years. But, but also he's saying that the last clean install he did was over a year ago. So to me, if anything, he's upgrading from, a uh, you know a ten five system. So oh, I don't even I don't think he's upgrading. I think he's going from Snow Leopard to Snow Leopard, right? Oh oh oh. That okay. that was my assumption, though it, it it could be it could be something else. Yeah. Okay, but but just put that out there. I uh, if you're doing a point upgrade, then I would. I don't know to me personally if it's worth doing a, a clean. I, I would just do what the you know the system does is just do an upgrade instead of a, a clean install. Yeah, there is that. Yeah, if you're going from Leopard to Snow Leopard, which rereading his email, you, I think you're right, John. He is he is doing an upgrade from 10.5 to 10.6. Uh, yeah, go ahead and I, I would do the upgrade right right there on there. I mean, it, definitely clone it off first, just in case you've got something that Snow Leopard barfs on. But otherwise, yeah, just just go with it, uh, and then do your clean install, you know, down the road. The, the the upgrade to Snow Leopard has been a very very clean process for most people. Well, I think that's the other thing is that, the, you know, Leopard, whereas I think there may have been more differences. I mean, I think Leopard to Snow Leopard was really just replacing a lot of the plumbing rather than being a, you know, huge, uh, you know, huge delta in terms of functionality. So. Right. Right. And right. it does do a, a good, you know, it's an archive and install. So you're getting a clean install of Snow Leopard that's then inheriting all your Leopard settings. And I and I appreciate that you may not want some of those settings that you have your preferences folder might be you know far more cluttered than you wish to have it because you install and delete a lot of apps but anyway uh one last thing before we before we duck out of here john joel wrote in in response to our comments in a recent show about how to learn to program on the mac joel wrote a resource that i've been gravitating gravitating toward while learning new things is itunes u for instance I pulled up 50 different items searching for Java programming. There's a Stanford course on iPhone programming. That's also a good start. And man, Joel, that's great advice. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, there, there is a lot of great stuff available totally for free out there in iTunes. U. and uh, I, I don't even think I've looked in there. I, well, I looked in there today, of course, and I saw a foreign sure. language instruction and, uh, yep. All sorts of things. There may be, you know, something on how to do a podcast. Uh, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But, uh, yeah, now Java. I don't know about Java. I mean, hmm. <laughs> those newfangled languages. <laughs> now, you know I'm a C guy. No, I've done some Java. It's just not my language of choice. Got it. Uh, all right. Audio comments to 
premium at MacGeekGab.com. We'll get to both John and myself. And so we appreciate all your stuff being sent there. You can send us text. As I said, you can send us audio comments. You can send us screenshots. You can send us pretty much whatever you want to send us. Really? Dave, did you say premium at MacGeekGab.com? By goodness, I did, John. Premium at MacGeekGab.com. You can also follow us at 206-666-GEEK, which is 4335, or you can Skype us to MacGeekGab. And uh, let's see, what else do we have? Oh, uh, of course, all the bandwidth is provided by Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com, and Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast proudly converts this to AAC for you. Do you have anything else to mention, John? I need some of that bandwidth. Yeah, you do. That's right. Call Cashfly. They'll take care of you. I okay. Don't, I don't know if they've got a pipe coming to your house, but, you know. If, uh, hey, if, the, if, the, are they an ISP? No. No, no, no. They're just a content delivery network. <laughs> yeah. If they were, you know, that that's my fish shake at, at what happens in the end. I know people that are having problems. Like, I, I got a friend in New York City who uh, is having the same problem with Comcast, is that, you know, we're still in this country in the mode of pretty much being locked into one provider for a particular class of service. That's right. Like here, I have cable. I, c- I could get UVerse, which I believe is DSL. Yes. That's and we don't have Fios yet. So I'm pretty much, I'm stuck. Uh, normally, I've been very happy with Optimum Online, and, and they seem to be dealing with me in a fair fashion. Yeah. And they'll fix this. Um, you know, I just wish there would be more competition in this country. Because uh, right now, I think it's pretty much non-existent. Well, there's a good reason for that. And the reason... Well, I... I- I, I, I'll tell me. I'll tell you. No. So you mentioned Uverse. It's a great example where they've they've sort of uh, allowed competition on the DSL side. But regardless of whose DSL service, who you pay for your DSL service, the line for you is owned by Southwestern Bell. Okay. So you are at you and your provider, whoever that provider is, are at the mercy of Southwestern Bell maintaining that line to your house. Uh, and the reason, and the same would be true if we had multiple cable operators, you know, there would be one cable operator that would be responsible for maintaining that line to your house. And the reason for this is because I, perhaps you, but I certainly don't want 40 different wires hanging in front of my house or, or down the street. One for AT&T, one for Time Warner, one for Comcast, one for Optimum, right? True. You, you know, so that's why, that's why this exists the way it does. Okay. But still, so in theory, there could be multiple. And actually, I think uh, in Fairfield, they did have a short trial where SNET started offering cable modem. As well as uh, com, uh, um, as well as optimal cable vision, yeah, huh? And gee, you, you know what happened, Dave? You'd never guess what happened. The prices went down. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. Isn't that- yeah. Well, the, and I think with the DSL operators, I think they have to sell it at a thirty percent discount to uh, to any other person that's got an operator license. So there's there's the potential for that person to make profit if they can do that with the thirty points that they're that they're given there. And that's part of Southwestern Bell's uh, or SBC's. Oh, I guess you have SNET. Sorry, but uh, but I guess they're all the same right now. But but uh, but that's part of their license, right? They 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 get a license to cover uh, a certain area, and the rule is a you have to cover the certain area. You can't leave people out. 
Uh, and then if, if it's a, you know, if it's a business where you've got to resell, then you also have to resell to the competition. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. uh, that's why that. I mean, the, the fun part here is that, you know, they initially, I mean, normally they don't like to send somebody out unless they have to. Sure. So the first go around, yes, I, you know, did swap out my modem and my, my splitter and that seemed to fix the problem for a while, but then it, it came back. As I told you last night, it, it was terrible. So, um, so this time I think maybe because I just fuddled the guy with so many, you know, statistics like here's my upstream and my downstream and here's my voltage and this and here's the quality of service rating from the modem he was just like uh yeah okay uh we'll send someone out go wait yeah <laughs> now i i gotta see if i can bamboozle the uh you know the guy that's gonna be climbing on the pole right right uh i did want to mention that uh october 14th through 16th john and i will be in las vegas for blog world and new media expo 2010 this is where the podcast expo is also uh, has has kind of become part of this. So uh, so we'll be out there doing that, and uh, and I encourage you all to do it too. It's, it'll be a blast. We've, we've actually met quite a few listeners out there. It's a it's a great show. If you have any interest in podcasting and and learning uh, more about uh, how to do this on your own and and the whole industry, blogging and podcasting, this is this is the place to go. So Blog World New Media Expo. It's at blogworldexpo.com. All right, that's it. We're ready to get out of here, John. Is that right? Are you sure? Um, yeah. Are you sure. Are we? Hit, are we? Hit, hit, are we the, ready? hit the button. Hit the button. I already hit the button. I'm just wondering if we're ready and, to get out of here. Bloggers and podcasters. It's almost like the vampires and the lichens, you know? <laughs> nah. <laughs> it's all the same thing. Kind of. Have fun. We will uh, be back. I believe we're back on Tuesday. But uh, between now and then, have a good weekend. And thanks for subscribing. But don't get caught. Made up.